Good evening, everybody. Um, It's not very cool these days to say that you're interested in morality, is it? Ethics, maybe. That's kind of cool. And that's because ethics has a kind of cutting edge out there in the complex modern world feel to it as if you're daily making hair-splitting decisions about, you know, say, say some scientist has, has cloned a goat crossed with a seagull. Is it okay to harvest its bone marrow for weapons technology? That's ethics. But morality is daggy. It's daggy. And that's because morality, I think, seems to have something to do with the actual way we live our lives, with decisions we might have to make. And nobody's really interested in that. We're just not in a world that cares about that kind of stuff very much. Why is that? Why is it that morality has a kind of passe feel to it? Well, for many people, I think it's because the really interesting question is no longer what's the right thing to do. The really interesting question is, is there any right and wrong at all? Uh, This week, I discovered an article by an American philosopher called Joel Marx, um, who for many years has uh, worked as a moral philosopher and he's written a column called Moral Moments. And he's decided, it sounds quite boring, doesn't it? But that's kind of my point. Um, He's decided he should embrace amorality. And this is, his, his column was about his conversion to amorality. Why? Well, he, he made the decision that, in fact, atheism did require you to not believe in morality. And because he is an atheist, he thought he had to give up morality. Now, I don't know what you think of that argument, but that's the kind of thing that's out there today, right? And it kind of makes you wonder about morality. It kind of makes people feel like it's not, it's not really that. Maybe morality's kind of jumped the gun a bit. Can we even really be sure there is such a thing as morality? And if we can't be sure, I mean, frankly, morality, it kind of asks a lot of you. So, you know, who can be bothered? Now, Christians don't tend to go in for this kind of thing. But for different reasons, Christians can also be pretty uncomfortable with the idea of morality. And that's because we know that salvation is a matter of grace. We're saved not because we're moral people, not because we're particularly impressive human beings, but because God in his grace gave his son to save us. And so anybody who takes morality too seriously can seem kind of like they've missed the main game. Um, listen to uh, what one guy I read this week, what he, how he put it. He said, if people in our Christian fellowships today were to announce that they had decided to keep God's law, we would probably be sceptical and alarmed we probably would take them aside for counselling and possibly alert other responsible people in the group to keep an eye on them. We would be sure nothing good would come of it. We know that nobody is saved by keeping the law and can think of no other reason why one should try it. The problem with this view is that it just doesn't really fit with what Jesus actually says in the Sermon on the Mount. You see, in the Sermon on the Mount, and particularly in the passage we're looking at this evening, Jesus calls his followers to a real obedience, what, what he calls a righteousness that surpasses the scribes and the Pharisees. 
And there is just nothing at all in what he says to make us think that he didn't really mean it. And so this evening, I hope we'll see that this attitude of not really worrying too much about how we live is mistaken. And not only mistaken, but profoundly dangerous. Salvation is, is, is by grace. We have nothing. If we forget that, if I don't make that clear, you should fire me. But we don't really know what grace is if we don't care about obedience. So let's listen together to this teaching from Matthew chapter 5 and see if we're perhaps underestimating what grace really means for us. Uh, So if you have it open, that would be super helpful. Um, The section we're looking at is part of the second half of Matthew chapter 5. It starts at verse 17. And really the second half of Matthew chapter 5 all hangs together. Um, And we're just looking at kind of the introduction, verses 17 to 20, and then the first uh, of the, the, the bits Jesus talks about. Uh, And this introduction, which we're going to look at first, um, I hope will help us know how to read the whole section because we're going to come back to it over the next few weeks. And actually, you'll look at it a bit in small groups, so yet another reason to get in on that. Verse 17, Jesus begins by telling his followers that he hasn't come to abolish the law and the prophets. He hasn't come to abolish, but to fulfil. And in fact, he goes on to say in verse 18, you can see there, Nothing will pass away from the law, he says, until everything is accomplished. Now, a couple of things to say about this. First, if nothing else, what this should make us get from it is is that the Old Testament still matters. The Old Testament still matters for Christians. Jesus clearly thought it did. Uh, And that, that just makes me want to ask, how well do you understand the Old Testament? The Old Testament is the thing which Jesus came to fulfil. So if you want to actually understand Jesus, you need to understand the Old Testament. Now, if you don't understand the Old Testament that well, frankly, that's actually okay. It's not supposed to happen automatically. It's not like you become a Christian and then just gradually you just get this understanding. It's the kind of thing you need to pursue. And so I want to encourage you to pursue understanding of the Old Testament tonight. Uh, Not tonight, but just in general. Tonight I want to encourage you. Um, And there are just lots of good ways to do that. I'm not going to harp on about this, but Jesus clearly thought it was important. We should too. That's the first thing I want to say. The second thing is that the Old Testament still matters, but not in the way people often think it does. See, people read here in, in verse 17, nothing's going to pass away, and then Jesus goes on in verse 19 and says, therefore... Anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. People read this passage just as Jesus saying, the Old Testament law still holds, so you better keep it. I'm persuaded, though, that that is a mistake. That is not what Jesus is saying there. Uh, And the main reason I think this is because in the context, these commands refer actually to the things Jesus is about to say. What Jesus is saying is um, the Old Testament still matters, so pay attention to the commands I'm about to say. Now, why does that make sense? Well, it's because he's just said he comes to fulfil 
the Old Testament. And so his teaching represents the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And so because the Old Testament matters, the fulfillment really matters. So Jesus is not so much saying the Old Testament still matters, so keep it. He's saying the Old Testament still matters, so make sure you pay attention to the thing that fulfills it. Him and his teaching. Um, and that's kind of where he, where, where he ends up in verse 20 uh, because he says, For unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, which are, who I take it were kind of the representatives of this Old Testament way of life, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus is saying he has kind of taken things a step up. In this passage, Jesus makes a claim to both confirm the Old Testament and to move beyond it. Move beyond it. He, he's taken it forward into a new space, and so his teaching really, really matters. The way of the kingdom is a step up from the righteousness of the old covenant. Now, before we go on to what this looks like in practice, we just need to pause a moment, don't we? And recognise that Jesus is clearly saying here, that the way his people live matters. Pay attention to my commands, says Jesus. Practice them and teach them and don't lay them aside. Why? Because you are called to a higher righteousness. Now, we will have more to say about righteousness and more to say about grace, but we shouldn't let it, it, that blunten what Jesus says here. This introduction is a call to take his teaching seriously, and I wonder if we're doing that. Well, let's go on to what Jesus does actually say. What does this righteousness look like? In the rest of chapter 5, as I've said, Jesus kind of describes it from various angles, and we're just going to look at the first one of these where he talks about arguments and settlements in verses 21 to 26. In verses 21 to 22, Jesus introduces the Old Testament law against murder, which we heard in the Ten Commandments. It's the Sixth Commandment. And then he intensifies it. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, but I say to you this. And what Jesus says is essentially that whereas the Old Testament condemned murder... The truth, as he is making it clear, is that anger too will bring judgment upon you, as will contempt, speaking about others in a way that makes, that makes them low and worthless. Now, a few things to say about these words in verses 21 and 22. First, these words work by their rhetorical effect. Right? Jesus is not... Um, He's not writing a legal textbook. He's preaching. Um, and so the right way to read these words is not just to take them legalistically, as if we could kind of go, okay, so I'm, a, I'm kind of allowed to say jerk, but I really shouldn't say idiot. You know, it's, it's not like that. Um, he's, making, he's saying these small things, these seemingly small things, and then contrasting them with these massive penalties. Raka, by the way, seems to have been an Aramaic term of abuse, and the Sanhedrin is the highest court of the land. And it's like Jesus is saying, if you call somebody a jerk, you'll go to the high court for it. And everybody's like, what? 
But the point is not to just apply it as, as kind of careful, specific rules. In fact, um, Jesus elsewhere gets angry about things. And in Matthew chapter 23, he actually says to the Pharisees, you blind fools. So I don't think Jesus wants us to just go, okay, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to do these things. What he wants to do is to provoke us, to push us and to just wake us up to something that he, he clearly thought was very, very important. And that is this, that hostility towards others or what we might call personal animosity, the kind of attitude to somebody that leads you to calling a name, to putting them down, that, says Jesus, is incredibly serious. In fact, it is the kind of thing, and he, he doesn't hesitate to say this, it's the kind of thing that will send you to hell. Now, Jesus seems to be saying that this is because there is actually a kinship, a kind of continuity between this kind of anger and contempt and murder, as if they're, they're actually from the same family. They're both an expression of a desire to harm someone. Now, that's what contempt is as well. It's an expression of it, and anger perhaps can be the beginning of that desire. This also helps us understand the kind of anger Jesus is talking about. The Bible's very clear, and Jesus is actually, I think, fairly clear if you read everything, that not all anger is bad. In fact, there are some things that if you're not angry about, something's wrong with you. Now, Jesus is talking here about a particular kind of anger. It's, it's the anger directed at another person. Anger at someone that desires their hurt or perhaps wants to win in a way that they lose. And Jesus says that is very dangerous. Um, do you know the kind of anger he's talking about? I think I do. It's the kind of anger that road rage gives you. A kind of frustration makes you lash out at somebody and you actually find yourself saying things that there's no way that the trivial little thing they did to you can justify. Um, it's the kind of anger that makes you stew negatively on another person. It's the kind of anger that, that you get if, is a feeling that somebody has offended you and they should pay for it. That, I think, is what Jesus is saying is deadly. And the thing about this kind of anger is that we actually have choices about it, don't we? I mean, there's, there's a, a reaction of frustration. Now, I don't think Jesus is really too worried about that. But then we have a choice whether we go with it or not. Whether we let ourselves be angry. Whether we act on it, snap or say something. Or whether we hold on to a quarrel. Jesus tells us here that this kind of anger is just not on. It's not the way of the kingdom. And we should be people who are different. His people should be people who are peacemakers. That's where he goes in the next, the two little examples, did you see, that follow on in verses 23 to 26. Have a look there. 
these are kind of positive takes on, on a different way to live. And they show us, I think, that Jesus was particularly concerned not just with our feelings, I mean, they matter, but they're not the main game, but with our relationships. The first one in verses 23 and 24, I think, I think that would have actually been much more shocking to Jesus' original hearers than it is to us. It pictures somebody who's offering their sacrifice at the altar, they're about to get things started, and they think, oh, Jimmy, back in Galilee, I mean, that's a, that, you know, that's a long way away from Jerusalem. He's still got, he's got an argument, and you go. Now, we don't do sacrifices, so what's going on? The sacrifice was not actually that regular an event. It was a special occasion. So I wonder if a, a good example of, of what it's like for us would be, imagine you're at your family Christmas lunch, right, and you're about to carve the turkey or the chicken, or whatever you have. And, you, and everybody's watching you, and oh, it's anticipation, you're about to go, and you think, Trevor, Dan, and he's, he's angry with me. And so you drive back from the coast, and everybody's, what happened there? Now, it's a deliberate exaggeration by Jesus, right? But you get his point, don't you? He's saying, this stuff has got to matter. Be the kind of person who makes peace. Who, who, who for, be the kind of person for whom arguments with people are not the kind of thing that you can just ignore. Now, just as an aside, um, I think it's significant that Jesus pictures this as a religious ceremony. And if nothing else, it should make us think about how we do church. Um, this year, our plan is to do the Lord's Supper together a little bit more. But don't do that if you haven't taken care of these kind of things. If you have a squabble with a brother or sister, if you are angry or if somebody is angry with you, that is more important than the religious stuff. Um, Make sure you take care of these things, especially if we're going to share the Lord's Supper together. The second example in verses 25 and 26 Um, I'm not going to dwell too long on it, but basically it pictures two parties on their way to court and Jesus, essentially what he says is, fix things up quickly, otherwise you can end up completely stuffed. And that's kind of what his point is. He uses this everyday example to show that arguments, hostility, can have terrible consequences. And if that's true in in real life, it's definitely true before the great court the final judgment. What would it look like, do you think, to take these examples seriously as a guide to how we live? Um, That's something I just would love you to dwell on over the next week. Uh, There is a lot more to say about anger and Jesus has more to say about reconciliation and these things are complicated and I just want to urge you to do the work. It may be that you need to talk to somebody about anger. Um, and can I recommend you talk to Roger Bray? Um, not that you can't talk to me, I'd love to talk to you, but I've been getting to know Roger Bray over the last few weeks and he has struck me as a wise man. And if you want to kind of take this seriously, perhaps that's a way forward. These two examples and this whole teaching show us that Jesus really cares about the, that the actual way we live our life. I think what he sets before us here is both attractive and practical. 
if this is a beautiful vision, isn't it? What Jesus points towards here is something that we can see is good and right. A, a way of living, a way of peace in the world that just stays away from this whole track of contempt and hostility that ends in murder. Imagine being a person like this. Or wouldn't it be great? A person who, who doesn't react angrily when offended, who doesn't kind of feel so much any infringement of their rights, a person whose who's bearing towards others is just full of generosity and grace and who, whose relationships are full of peace. This is what the righteousness that surpasses the scribes and the Pharisees looks like, says Jesus. Now, this is a difficult path to walk on, to be sure, right? That, this is tricky. But we just need to notice that it's not from another planet, right? It's not like Jesus is giving us here something completely beyond anything we can imagine. Sometimes people read the Sermon on the Mount like this, right? As if Jesus is setting out an ideal, imaginary, completely unreachable standard, totally out of touch with real life. But he's not doing that. Jesus is not asking us to do something we can't understand. We know what it would look like to be this kind of person. We can at least imagine it faintly. We know how to obey some of these things. This is not a make-believe ideal. This is a real way to live in the real world. But of course, that only makes it pretty clear, doesn't it, that we're in a bit of trouble. Because, you see, when you, when you think Jesus is doing, when you think what Jesus is doing here is setting out an impossible standard, right, just a high bar that, the only point of which is to make us all go, wow, that's a high bar. If you think that's what Jesus is doing, it kind of lets you off the hook. Because nobody can really care if you can't do it. But when you realise that Jesus means this actually to be practical and he meant us to work at living this way, then it puts you in a pretty tricky spot. What it does, I think, is it, it confronts us with both our failures and our weakness. That's certainly what it does for me. I have to acknowledge that I've failed to avoid these sins. I'm not a violent man. I don't think I'm even an angry man, really. But I've failed in these ways. These things have been part of my life. I have let myself be angry. I've treated others with contempt. This teaching confronts me with my sin. But of course, it's not just the things that I do, it's the things that I don't do. It's my weakness, because although I can kind of see, I, I know what Jesus is talking about, but I don't know how to get there. I don't know where I find the strength to live this way in the world, to keep treating people with this kind of generosity. This teaching confronts us with our weakness as well. So then, is this teaching, is it at the end of the day, is this just a slap in the face? 
Is Jesus teaching just, just a message of judgment, a word of death? Because we've already seen how we can't pretend that our obedience doesn't matter, right? That's not an option to just go, doesn't matter if, doesn't really matter. It does matter. So do we just throw up our hands in despair and frustration? Well, no, we don't. But it's important to feel that we might have needed to do that. But we don't for one reason, and that's the one who is teaching us these things. If you're with him, things are different. And that's because with Jesus, two things are possible. Forgiveness and power. To show you this, turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. I think it's on page 1201. Is that right? 1 Peter chapter 2. Have a look at verse 23. 22, actually. This is Peter reflecting on the last hours of Jesus' life, which, remember, he was there, he saw this. And Peter says, He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. And when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. He managed to avoid this anger track. And when he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. With Jesus, you see, because he lived the life that we couldn't live and he died in our place, there is forgiveness for our failures and there is shelter from the judgment we deserve. But not just forgiveness, power. Because he rose from the dead, there is power to live life anew. This is the problem with thinking that God's grace means we don't have to worry about how we live our lives. It's not that that has too much grace, it's that it doesn't have enough. It doesn't really understand what grace needs. Because we have not understood God's grace until we've got hold of the fact that it means not just forgiveness, but power. He bore our sins in his body on the cross, writes Peter, so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Jesus calls us not just to confession of sin, but to obedience. He calls us to righteousness, not just to sorrow for our sin. For those who trust in Jesus, you see, his teaching does not just have to be a reminder of our failure and weakness. It can also be a vision for our lives. We won't live this way fully or perfectly just yet, but there is forgiveness. 
but it will also be more than just a reminder of how we've gone wrong. And in fact, you know what? That is the righteousness that surpasses the scribes and the Pharisees. The righteousness of somebody who takes Jesus' teaching very seriously and who is driven by it with sorrow for their sins to the cross and there finds in the death and resurrection of Jesus the forgiveness and the power they need to live in a new way in the world. So friends, let me urge you this evening not to pass over Jesus' teaching here and in the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. Not to pass over it as if it kind of just doesn't matter for you. But also not to just fall back from it in despair that you can never, that it's just judgment for you. Because with Jesus there is forgiveness and power. And if you come to him, that is what you'll find. And let me finish by just especially speaking to any here who might have been struck by their need to learn to be different in, in, in relation to their anger. Come to Jesus because with him there is forgiveness and with him there is power. And his teaching here can be a new story for your life because of his death and resurrection. So let me urge you, friends, to repent, but to really repent, not just to be sorry, but to turn around and live in a new way. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we want to thank you for your teaching. We thank you for your teaching which shows us the truth about our lives. and which gives us a picture of how our lives might be. But we thank you even more than this for your life and death and resurrection in which we know we can find the forgiveness and the power we need so that we can really live as your people. Lord, we know we're not going to do this perfectly just yet, but in you is a sure hope of righteousness and we pray that we would live for it trusting in you. And we pray this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.